Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. Don't stand yet. We will in just a moment as we honor God's Word together. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. A few years ago, uh, we were in the Destin area for vacation, and we had some friends, Elizabeth and I did, that rented a tandem bike. I don't know if you've ever been on a tandem bike. They look deceivingly simple. So they, they rented this bike, and, and they encouraged us to take a turn on the bike, to which I quickly declined. And then I was nudged and coerced and forced into doing that. And so Elizabeth and I uh, climbed onto this bike. I'm not going to tell you who was in the front and who was in the back. Um, but one of us would turn left. And if you've ever been on a tandem bike, you know, it's not too hard to go straight. But if you want to turn at all, you have to turn together. If you want to move any direction, you have to kind of move in sync. You have to communicate. And so this was a real test of our marriage. And <laughs> epic failure. Epic failure. You know, we would try to turn left and one of us wouldn't be leaning far enough. And then we just almost fall on the ground. And a few times we actually did. And I think we dented the bike. I think we popped one of the tires. I don't know. It was pretty, it was pretty spectacular. We were great just pedaling straight. But when we had to think and communicate and stay in sync together, it was really difficult. If you're married today, you know and understand that life can be really frustrating when you're out of sync with your spouse. If you've been there, you know that. And it's wonderful when things are in sync and you're working together and you're going the same direction. But life can be even more frustrating and the consequence is even greater when we're out of sync with God. And, and here we are and God's trying to say, let's go this way and we're going a different direction. And he's leaning right, we're leaning left. And boy, things just become a mess really in a hurry. And so today we're going to look at and start a new series. We'll continue it on Sunday nights through the book of Ecclesiastes. And here we find a man who authored this book, who started his life as a young man, completely in sync with God. I mean, they're going the same direction. He has the same heart. They're doing the same thing. They're going the same way. And yet somewhere along the way, he fell out of sync with God. And here he has as an older man, he was able to complete the circle and come back to being in sync with God. And that's the lesson from this book, is staying in sync with our Heavenly Father. So if you're there, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, please stand with me. We'll look at a few verses together this morning and really break into this uh, series. And there are some really practical and helpful and, and even fun thoughts to preach from this book. Today's a little heady. Um, as we break into this and begin to understand the context and the background for the future thought development. So hang with me, all right? Chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? Great question and one we're going to work at tackling today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today and the chance to be together as a church family, for our guests that are here assembled as well. Lord, thank you for this great nation that we live in, the freedom to worship you today, or the beautiful music sung. Lord, I trust that today uh, we would lend our hearts to your word and to maybe your Holy Spirit speaking to us. Maybe some words that are said today that would be a help to us. Maybe words that aren't said, but your spirit moves in our heart. And so may we be listening and, and thoughtful and attentive and then responsive, Lord, in our, in our response to you 
as our Heavenly Father today. So speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. King David, to whom many of you would know his name, was one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. He was the one that really turned the nation back towards the Lord. And he became king right after Saul died, the conclusion of 1 Samuel, the beginning of 2 Samuel, right in, into the, the beginning chapters there. David lived a harrowing life. Uh, it was full of ups and downs. Even the way he became king was a big deal. It was full of drama. It was full of war, full of financial ruin. David experienced the lowest lows of life and some of the highest highs. But through his tenacity, through his faith in God, he was considered the man after God's own heart. And David always loved the Lord. And sure, he had seasons where he drifted from the Lord, but he always came back to him. And so through his faith in God and God working in him, he delivered Israel from their enemies. And they were many and they were powerful. And God used David in, in just an incredible way. David was able to stockpile a massive amount of treasure and he was able to establish peace for the nation. Well, upon his death, his son Solomon became king. And at that time, God came to Solomon and God gave to him the opportunity of a lifetime. He comes to him, the Bible says, and he speaks to Solomon and says, Solomon, I will give you any request you ask of me. Now, can you imagine? This is better than Aladdin and the genie, right? I mean, there are no limitations here. This is God coming to you and saying, you think of it and I'm going to give it to you. And Solomon's response was incredible, especially for a young man just coming into the position that he was in. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for fame or for more power. He asked for wisdom. And there was wisdom in his asking for wisdom. He wanted wisdom specifically to know how to govern the people. I mean, he was put in this position. And he says, I, don't, I didn't go to a school that taught me how to do this. I don't know what's coming at me. I, I'm, I'm scared to death. My father made this look easy and I, I'm like a child and I don't know how to go in and, and come out. And, and he, he says to God, God, would you give me wisdom to govern? Give me wisdom to lead people. Give me wisdom so that I can be a good shepherd and guide and help others. What a mature, loving and wise request Amen. that he would be more considered, not about himself, but he was more concerned about the people that he would lead. And it pleased God so much. God was so happy with that request. And he said he would bless Solomon. And he said, you know what, Solomon? You could have asked for a lot of things. And since you didn't, I'm going to give you those things too. And so bear with me. I'm going to read a few verses. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like before thee, Neither after thee shall any arise like thee. And then he says, And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked. And here's the list. Both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. God says, I'm going to give you what you asked for. But Solomon, I so, I'm so touched by your request. I'm just going to give you everything you didn't ask for. Because what you asked me pleases me so much. A wise and an understanding heart didn't mean Solomon immediately knew everything. Like he wasn't ready to write the book of Proverbs on day one. It didn't make him instantly all-knowing. 
he still had to apply himself to the pursuit of knowledge and hard work, which is what he did. Solomon devoted his life to learning. He devoted his life to hard mental labor. He disciplined and he focused his mind to know the truth. He studied, he taught, he judged, he wrote, he did all of these things. And as time went on, he added to his knowledge and he grew in immeasurable knowledge and he added to his wealth. And the Bible describes his wealth in an unmeasurable fashion. And we won't talk about that this morning, but it was incredible. He grew in power and influence and leaders from around the world would come to him to sit at his feet, to learn from him, to witness the marvel of the nation that he built. For his part, Solomon never stopped seeking. He never stopped trying to learn. He never stopped growing. He, he, he never stopped asking questions. I was in research yesterday with Elizabeth and my son David. And as a father of small children, I get asked a lot of questions. And there was this sign on the shelf. And it was, I think, on clearance from Father's Day. And it was this little, little plaque. And it said, go ask your mother, dad. And so I took a picture of it. And then yesterday, as the kids were asking me questions, like they'd ask questions, and I just pull up my phone and I'd just show them that. You know, go ask your mother, dad. <laughs> it didn't go over very well, but I, I enjoyed it while it lasted. And, and here was Solomon. He's just asking question after question after question. You know, some of the questions he asked, we also ask. Like, why am, why am I unhappy right now? What is life's meaning and purpose? Why is there so much suffering and injustice? Is life even worth living? Here is a man who had access to all the world's knowledge and all the world's wealth and wisdom, and he used everything at his disposal to find answers to the big questions. Not like, can I have a snack? But like, these are the big questions, like what's the purpose of life? And in verse 13 of our text this morning, he says, I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. But something shifted dramatically in his heart. Because in 1 Kings chapter 3 that we read a few moments ago, here's this young man who loves God. Here's this young man who's praying to God. Here's this young man who's in fellowship with God and asks an incredibly wise request. That's 1 Kings chapter 3. But over here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we find an old man. So this is the span of his life. And somewhere in this span, between 1 Kings 3 and Ecclesiastes chapter 1, something shifted. Something turned inside of his heart, and it was dramatic. Here was a reign and a man whose reign started with so much hope. If anyone had it made, Solomon did. If anyone in life had a chance at finding true happiness and satisfaction and joy and a reason to smile, it was Solomon. He had the world at his fingertips. He had a God that he loved and served. We expect, if we read this chapter and didn't see the book of Ecclesiastes, we would expect this man to be an old man with a permanent smile on his face etched in with wrinkles. We expect him to be a king with all of his children and grandchildren around him, loving him. He's supposed to look back at his life with deep satisfaction and joy and a permanent smile. It's not what we find. It's not even close. Like, it's the exact opposite. Here's a man who should have been happy. And here's a man who's anything but happy. As he pens these words, he's an old man. And instead of nights full of restful sleep, 
He's pacing. He's unable to sleep. He is alone in his chamber. He's lost in the shadows, figuratively and literally. Isolated, alone, talking to himself. If you still have your Bibles open, look at verse 16 with me of this chapter. He says, I commune with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate. I've gotten more wisdom than all they that had been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Okay, stop. Are we okay so far? Yeah. But then in bitterness, he continues the verse. I perceive that this also, catch these words, is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increases sorrow. Now, is that true? Well, not necessarily. But for Solomon it was. Because something had shifted in his heart. He mumbles. He fidgets with shaking hands. He was a king. He inherited everything. He had his dad be the God after man's, uh, uh, the man after God's own heart. He had a shot at happiness. God gave everything to him. He literally had all the things we strive for. Solomon had it all. He could ask for whatever he wanted. He wasn't supposed to grow old and frustrated and bitter. He's extremely sad, though. His soul is aching in a way that can be described only as vexation. It's this idea of great agitation and distress. He says, I am in vexation and I can't sleep and I'm alone with my thoughts and the life that I thought I would have and the things that I pursued, it was all wrong. Vanity of vanities, all is. This is vanity. You're talking to a man who's beyond unhappy. He's in distress. And he asks this question in verse 3. What profit hath the man of all his labor which he takes under the sun? I strove, I worked hard. I lived and now I will die for all of my accomplishments, for all the things that I did. He says, I have nothing. Verse 4, he says, one generation passeth away and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. What's he saying? No one wins. I can compete against you, but in the end, no one wins. No one gets to beat death. We all have to die. No one is remembered for long on earth. His labor and all he gave himself to is going to die with him. It's all temporal and it's futile. Solomon had everything the world could offer. So these questions pop in my mind. What ruined him? On this timeline between 1 Kings 3 and Ecclesiastes 1, what happened here? Did the riches ruin him? Was it the money? Was it the gold? Was it the pleasure? Did his questions go too far? Did he ask too many? Were they too deep? Did they lack in faith? Did he have too much power? And then questions like this I ask, are the pleasures of life going to ruin us too? And I want to submit to you this morning, I don't think it was the money and the gold. I don't think it was the privilege and the power that ruined him. So what ruined him? Well, in 1 Kings 3, he had a heart that was dependent on God. He had a heart that turned to God for answers. He had a heart that was sensitive and thoughtful towards the people that he led. 
He had a heart that trusted in God. Now, this applies to us this morning. Having a heart that had and having a heart that has are not the same thing. Solomon had these things. And so many of us are still living in the past of things that we had, had love for God, had a quiet spirit in, in alignment with Him. I, I, I remember back then, let me tell you the stories when I was a Christian, I was younger. Too many of us are like that. When I was a child, I had that love for God. I had that spirit, that tenderness, and that dependence, and that trust in Him. But what he had and what Solomon has at the writing of this are not the same thing. Because in Ecclesiastes was, 1, he was no longer dependent on God. He depended on the world and on himself. He didn't look to God for answers. He looked within and he looked without. He no longer trusted the Lord. He trusted what was observable and what could be seen. See, the allure of the world, though, it faded. And the world duped and deceived the world's wisest man. And if the world can dupe and deceive the world's wisest man, who of us can escape? We have to be careful. Ecclesiastes is a book full of the musings of an old rich man who lived life poorly. And it's truly depressing. It would not make Amazon's top 25 list. It's a great book, but it's not written to make us feel good. It's bottom line thinking, it's raw, and it has no filter. It's filled with despair. And we are presented with an incredibly gloomy view of life. One ancient rabbi, speaking of Ecclesiastes and Solomon's words, he, he said, Oh, Solomon, where is your wisdom? Not only do your words contradict the words of your father David, they even contradict themselves. Make no mistake, his life was very sad. But it didn't have to be. And neither does ours. And that's the point of the book. Solomon is writing to us. His ending is avoidable, and he didn't want others, including you and I, to live the life he did. So he takes up his pen, and he begins, and he identifies himself as a preacher. He says, I have a truth to proclaim, and I have a position to proclaim it. And we are continuing to be part of the audience to whom Solomon would preach. And he says, the life that I lived, the questions I made, and the decisions that I, I, I made myself, they were all vanity, and all is vanity. And he begins this passage by simply asking this question, What profit hath a man for all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Profit. It's the idea of advantage. Labor. It's the idea of toil and hard work and effort. He is not writing to people who don't give, any, to, who don't give a care in the world. He's not writing to people who don't work hard who just let things be. He's saying, look, this is written to people who, who care, and people who've worked hard, and people who labor, and they get up tomorrow morning, and they're going to go to work, and they're going to come home, and they're going to go back, and they're going to do it again. And he says, for all of our striving, and we're trying to get somewhere with our effort, and our time, and our blood, and our sweat, and our tears, what's your profit? Like, what's your real advantage? Because the money that Ben talked about today that goes into the bank account in, on his phone and on ours comes right back out. And he says, so what's the real advantage here? What do you get? What's the profit? But before he finishes that question, he says these words, under the sun. In the book of Ecclesiastes, this is an important phrase. It's going to be said 29 times in the book. 
It frames Solomon's life and it frames his understanding. So what does it mean? Well, under the sun is a phrase that's both literal and it's figurative. It's a perspective. It means all that happens in this life, the things that take place on this side of eternity, in the short lifespan that you and I have. It's a life that's lived with the sole purpose of existing, of seeking pleasure, of benefiting, and these aren't evil or wrong things. But it's a life that's lived with no thought given to what is above the sun. Now we understand that both literally and figuratively. He's saying under the sun, but there's another perspective and that would be above the sun. And so his question and his answers minus the variable of what's above the sun. And that variable is a significant one. He was asking these questions and he was seeking to answer them minus the variable of God. If we were honest, we would all admit today upon a little bit of reflection that we make a lot of choices and a lot of decisions and a lot of motivations without God, without thinking about Him, minus that variable. We are not talking about someone this morning who didn't know God. We're not talking about someone who didn't believe in God. We're not even talking about someone who maybe necessarily didn't go to church because Solomon would go to the tabernacle and temple. He built the thing and he had a role there. So it wasn't like he didn't go. He would go and the Bible says he'd offer sacrifices there. So it wasn't like he, we can't associate with him. He's one of us. He goes to church. He, he, he understands the Lord. He knows God. He prayed to God. He, know he, was, he knew he was real and to a degree he served God. But as he grew older, Solomon began to relate to God in a positional way. And what do I mean by that? I mean simply this. He knew that God was God and that that's his position. Okay? I have a wife, a beautiful wife that I don't deserve. Okay? Her name's Elizabeth. She's my wife positionally. That, that, that doesn't necessarily mean we have a good relationship just because she's my wife. I made a commitment to her, she made a commitment to me. But that's a position. God was in a position to him. So Solomon, he served the Lord in a positional way, but he didn't, and he failed to, as he grew older, invite God's presence into his life and into the life that he lived. So I can, I can serve Elizabeth in a positional way, but it doesn't mean I love her. It doesn't mean I invite her presence into my heart. It doesn't mean I give her my presence just because she's positionally my spouse. And this was Solomon's problem. I have a boss. He's a, I'm not gonna say anything about him today that's negative. I know you guys, you'll repeat it. He's a great guy, great boss. I've served him for a while now. He's my boss positionally. But there's a unique relationship too there. Like I wanna be, I want to honor him. And so I invite his presence into my life and I want to be part of his life. Not, not just like he's who signs my paycheck. I want to understand his heart and I want to help propel this church in the direction that God's laid on his heart. If I relate to my wife or boss in a positional way and that's it, there's going to be all sorts of problems. See, Solomon knew God's position and instead of allowing that knowledge to determine how he related to God, he chose to do life apart from him and it caused him all sorts of problems too. God became strictly positional to Solomon. And when that happened, everything 
became meaningless. So see, here's the application. Instead of pursuing knowledge and education in order to better serve and understand God and His ways and His people, he pursued knowledge and education as an end in and of themselves. He pursued wealth and what it could buy, not as a means to serve God and bless others, but as a means to simply indulge himself. Chapter 2. He sought to make a name for himself, not so he could point others to God, but that so that he could find self-aggrandizement. He immersed himself in work and heavy labor, not to accomplish good for God and others, but to feel satisfaction and purpose. And so what did he find? Well, he says, man, I did all this. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And all it produced in my heart was vexation of spirit. Solomon failed to invite the Lord's presence into his pursuits, into his entertainment, into his treatment of other people, into his amusements, his passions, his attitude, his reading, his work. Solomon failed to invite God, not in the positional way, but in a personal way, God's presence into his life. And so he frames this question, and it's not necessarily a bad question. The question itself isn't necessarily bad, but the context of the question is bad. He says, what profit hath a man of all his labor? That's the question. Not a bad question. But the context was this, which he taketh under the sun. When you have bad context, you are going to have a bad answer. So what do you get for all your hard work on this earth at the end of life? Well, the answer is under the sun, nothing. Nothing. That's the answer. We don't like that answer. Solomon didn't like that answer. And he tried to prove it wrong. And he couldn't do it. The answer is nothing. But the question of profit and of gain is a really good one. Because we work hard. And we give a lot of effort. So Jesus asked almost the same question. He said in Matthew 16, 26, What is a man profited? Question of profit. What do you gain for all your labor? If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He didn't just ask what you would gain for your labor. But what would you gain if for your labor you were actually able to get everything in the world? Well, who did that? Solomon. Solomon. Perhaps Jesus was thinking about Solomon in Matthew chapter 16. And he says, or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The implication here is this. There is nothing in the world that we're chasing that can satisfy us. As much as we don't want to believe that, as much as the TV commercials and the social media ads and the world system and our employers and our friends at work and all the things that they're doing on our social media accounts and the stories that we hear about the people and the things we decide to chase to make us happy, the truth is this. It can't make you happy. There is nothing you can buy, there's no experience you can have that's going to give you deep soul satisfaction. It only leads in and of itself as an end to eventual vexation. But if you change the context of the question, all of a sudden the question takes on new meaning and purpose. So here's the question again. What profit hath a man of all his labor? I've worked hard, I'm putting in the time, here's the context which he does for the God above the sun. My paraphrase. Good context. When you have a good context, well, then you get a good answer. See, you add Jesus and everything makes sense. And instead of a vexed soul, he says, I'll give you peace. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. 
you will never find the answers in life that you're seeking apart from Jesus. You're never going to find the satisfaction and the hope and the healing that your soul craves and longs for apart from Him. Solomon tried. He failed spectacularly. You can't leave God's presence out of your life and have things make sense. When my wife and I get out of sync, I don't know where she is. she in here this morning? Where are you at, babe? We're out of sync today. There you are. Okay. <laughs> when she and I are out of sync, I can tell you, it affects our home. It affects our relationship. It affects my children. Maybe in subtle ways that you wouldn't even understand, it might affect my spirit and my attitude here. It affects my preaching, my teaching, my ministry to other people when we're out of sync. It's just not good. That's a human relationship. How much more so when you and I are out of sync with God? It just, it, it taints everything. It colors everything. So I come to church and I serve and I do these and God is God. And you, you and I believe everything the same doctrinally and you and I have the same exact belief structure. We got it. We're all the same here. Or hope we are. Or close to being. But when we fail to invite the Spirit of God, the presence of God, not just the doctrine, not just the cold hard truths of Scripture, I'm talking about the person of God, His presence in our lives, everything falls apart. And life's a mess. And there's a lack of understanding. And there's vexation in our spirit. And we ask questions without that filter. And we're frustrated. And we're upset. And we have no peace within. In verse 10, he asks another question. Look there with me. In verse 10, he says, Is there anything new whereof it may be said? See, this is new. What's he saying? Everything's old. Everything's on repeat. Everything's a pattern. There's no profit. There's nothing new. Now look, there may not be anything profitable or new under the sun. But everything is profitable. And everything is new with the God who rules above it. The Christian life isn't old. It might get stale at times only to the degree that we are out or not filtering through things through the presence of God. But it's not dead. It is not meaningless and it's not vanity. We serve a God who doesn't let things end at death. Solomon was looking at his lifespan. He was looking at his death. And he was saying, I'm almost to the end. I'm almost to the finish line. And it meant nothing. And God says in Revelations, behold, that's just the starting place. I make all things new. We're just getting started. There is hope and there is a future for you and I that exceeds all of our understanding and expectations. Life's frustrations, the pain that you experience today, the, exp the, the difficulties you face, they are nothing compared to the weight of eternity, Paul said. We live in hope of a new day. And the weariness of life in our souls is the very thing that's supposed to point us to the only God that can satisfy them. We're to take that to Him. What if you could read the brutally honest advice of an extremely wealthy and powerful businessman? And maybe some of you have. Ray, Ray Dalio, I think, came out with a book recently. Some of, some of these guys, and, and we all have got these books from these different entrepreneurs and businessmen that are wealthy and successful. And boy, we buy up their books and we want to learn from them. But what if you could buy the book of a man who was the most wealthy man who ever lived? Like, he had it all. And what if that advice was, don't do life the way I did. Reverse engineer my success. 
and you'll be a happier, better person. And we have the manual. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity put it this way, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, speaking of Adam and Eve, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slave, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing. Jesus' leadership, his involvement in our lives isn't just so that we can be saved. When we get saved, for whosoever, the Bible says, calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When we ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins, the Bible says he comes into our heart and he saves us. And you know what the first new thing that happens is? We get a new life. No longer are we going to die and go to hell. We get to die and go to heaven. And we get this new life in Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you, that's not the ending point. That's the starting point of the Christian life. That's where things just begin. We are to live our lives every day with His presence and in hope of the new day that is going to come. And at the end of his biographical tour, Solomon gets to the very last verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and we'll get there in a few months. And he says this, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Okay, so I've written this whole book. Here's my biography. Here's all the things I did wrong. He says, fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good, or whether it be evil, period. The end. Let us fear God. Keep his commandments. Solomon wasn't trying to destroy our hope. He was trying to redirect it. He's saying, I put my hope in all the wrong things under the sun. He said, we need to live life above that. We need to filter things through God. You will never find the questions, the answers, the, the answers to the questions you're asking. You'll never find the purpose. You'll never find the peace without Jesus Christ. God made those promises to him. In 1 Kings chapter 1, I left off a very relevant verse. So I read a few of them. God hears his prayer request for wisdom. And God says, Solomon, that's awesome. I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to give you riches and I'm going to give you honor, because you didn't ask for those things. And then he says this to Solomon, verse 14, And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, he says, then I will lengthen thy days. God has blessings untold for those who walk in his ways. They aren't necessarily the same blessings he promised to Solomon. Your name's not Solomon. You don't get the riches and the wealth and the honor necessarily. That might be for some of us. It's not for us all. But there are blessings untold that God has specialized for you. And we're never going to receive those unless we walk in his ways. The perpetual challenge throughout the study of this book is to live for God and not for ourselves. For all of his wisdom, Solomon failed to apply it. Wisdom and knowledge do nothing for us unless we take it and we do it. He made mistakes. He chose folly. His end was bitter. And he is saying to you, 
your life doesn't have to be this way. You might be saved. You might know the Lord. You're in church today. But is God's presence in us? Have we thought about Him in a long time? Have we sincerely gone to Him and invited Him in our hearts, in our decisions, in our lives? When life doesn't make sense, when we're frustrated, we're hurt, and our spirit's in turmoil, it might just be because, like Solomon, we abandoned his ways. And God said, if you'll do this, Solomon, you're going to have a happy ending. And somewhere along this lifespan, Solomon left the path of his ways. I want to challenge you with this thought this morning. Invite not just his position into your life. Don't let God just be your Lord. Don't just let him be a positional God to you. Invite his presence. Don't just sing the songs. Don't just go through the motions. Don't just do the service. Don't just come to church. Invite his presence. Make him a part of your world and your life. This end doesn't have to happen. We can course correct. And Solomon is begging us to do that today. Let me ask you to stand if you would this morning. Heads bowed and eyes closed.